If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we want to look at the first 15 verses this morning. And I've entitled the message, Parables and the Mysteries of the Kingdom. And uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as a people. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we note the outline overhead, uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. And you do realize the Jews, the whole of the Jewish history is really looking forward to the special coming one, uh, the king who would come who would deliver his people Israel, who would reign over his people Israel. Matthew is presenting the fact that this special one anticipated has come. And he presents the what we might call the resume of the coming Messiah King in chapters 1 through 10. And then what is the response of the nation going to be? Well, chapters 11 and 12, they rejected him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. That's chapters 11 and 12. And now we come to Matthew chapter 13, which is the chapter on parables, the parables of the king. Matthew 13 marks a major turning point in the book and a major shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This shift denotes a form of judgment on, quote, this wicked generation which is seen in Christ now addressing the crowds strictly in parables, which they could not understand. After all the sign evidence clearly showing that he is the prophesied Messiah, the people of Israel largely rejected his claims. There's always a remnant, but by and large, the nation, led by their religious leaders, rejected him. And their rejection is seen in their lack of repentance, as noted by Christ in chapter 11, and also seen in the representation of the religious leaders who went so far as to claim that Jesus was doing his phenomenal miracles by the power of Satan, as seen in chapter 12. Therefore, Jesus called that entire generation an evil and adulterous generation, 1239 and also this wicked generation, 1245. The focus at this point goes from reaching out to the nation to Christ inviting individuals who labor and are heavy laden to come to him and find rest in him, as seen in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. And then in chapter 12, Jesus puts the focus on a personal relationship with him, saying in Matthew twelve fifty, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and mother. This brings us, by way of introduction, to chapter 13. And Matthew 13 is the third of five major discourses in the book. So we're halfway through at this point, as far as the major discourses. Uh, We start out with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, What a greatest sermon ever given, many have called it. Matthew 5 through 7. Then the commissioning of the 12, Matthew chapter 10... And now the parables of the kingdom, and two more will follow community instructions, including that introduction as far as the church family and and church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. And then concluding with the Olivet Discourse, uh, that discourse on end times, as we see in Matthew 24 and 25. Well, let's pick it up, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. 
On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Now, when it says on the same day, that's very important because it connects back to chapter 12. Uh, This verse connects Christ's teaching of parables in chapter 13 to the same day of what has just happened in chapter 12 regarding the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit and Christ declaring the people of his day to be a wicked generation. So I want you to note that. His declaration, they're a wicked generation, and now he's beginning to teach them in parables. D.A. Carson says this, good summary statement here. Matthew links the parabolic discourse in chapter 13 to the preceding controversies and ends it with a formulaic conclusion, which implies that all these parables were given on this occasion, and we think they were. Verse 2, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, a massive amount of people, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So the masses of people were following Christ at this time, but most of them were fickle and not real disciples. He has just said this wicked generation. Hence the parables addressing their unbelief and lack of repentance. Christ saw right through their fickleness. Just because you have a massive amount of people showing up at some place doesn't mean they're all there. Verse 3, then he spoke many things to them. Who? To these masses of people, to these crowds, these multitudes. He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Well, here we are introduced to Christ's ministry of parables. And frankly, all kinds of error has been brought into the church because of not correctly handling the parabolic teachings of Christ. Even a huge segment of my dispensational brethren are off on this topic, in my opinion. Many get the parables wrong, and yet it is a very important part of Christ's teaching ministry. So let's begin with the word parable. It literally means to cast alongside. It's actually uh, made up of two Greek words, a combination of two Greek words. Para, meaning alongside, and balo, meaning to cast. Hence, to cast alongside. That's a literal meaning of the word parable. Warren Wiersbe says, It is a story or a comparison that is put alongside something else to make the lesson clear. Good definition. Parables are true-to-life stories that teach spiritual truth by way of an analogy. But parables have suffered terrible abuse because of errant teaching. It has been said that parables have suffered a fate of misinterpretation second only to the book of Revelation. That's probably a pretty accurate analysis. In the early church, parables became subject to such extreme allegorism So that in reaction to this, many interpreters came to emphasize that there's only one single point being made in a parable. Now, I might agree that there's there's usually one main point, but to say there's only one single point, that would seem to go a little too far because Christ's own interpretation of his parables often makes several points of analogy 
as seen, for example, in the parable of the sower and the soils. The first parable that Jesus shares is called the parable of the sower and the soils. It's introductory. It's really the gateway parable that is foundational to all the other parables here in Matthew chapter 13. So I say this is the first of seven parables in Matthew 13, but it is different. It's different than the other parables. The other six begin with the formula, the kingdom of heaven is like. Every one of these other parables begin like that. The kingdom of heaven is like. But this first one does not have that formula. Warren Wearsby says this, The parable of the sword does not begin with the kingdom of heaven is like because it describes how the kingdom begins. I think he's on to something there. In a sense, this first parable is an evangelistic outline parable that describes who ultimately is going to be in the kingdom. That is the ultimate issue. Everything begins there. Those that properly respond to the word will go into the kingdom. And that's the issue with this parable. Showing that there are various responses to the word, but only a sincere life-changing response that bears fruit will get you into the kingdom. Thus, this first parable of the sower and the soils is really the premier parable on which all the rest build as is reflected in Mark 4.13. Notice what uh, a parallel passage here, Mark 4.13 says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And he's talking about the parable of the sower and the soils. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If you don't get this one, you won't get the other ones. Everything builds on this one. So this parable of the sower and the soils is basic to understanding all the rest. Because as I say, it is foundational to understanding who will ultimately even go into the kingdom. And once you understand that reality, then the other kingdom insights build on it. So Jesus begins this first parable by saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Well, Jesus himself will interpret this parable in verses 18 through 23. So we'll wait to unpack it at length until next time. But for now, I will touch on a few basic points. The parable has three main elements, namely the sower, the seed, and the soils. The seed is the word of God, which is spread everywhere in the path of the sower. However, the emphasis in the parable is on the different kinds of soils, which represent various responses to the kingdom message. Dr. Michael Vlock, I really love Dr. Michael Vlock because he's like-minded. You know, I find it very easy to love those that are like-minded. But anyway, Dr. Michael Vlock says, it explains how the message of the kingdom is not received by all. It could be baffling, to contemplate how the Messiah and his message could be rejected by so many. How could Israel reject her Messiah? But this parable explains why. There's nothing wrong with the sower, Jesus, or with the seed, the kingdom message. But there is something wrong with the hearts of men who hear the message. That's the point. Verse 4 Through seven, and he sowed. Some 
as he sowed. Some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Here we have three different kinds of soils that represent various kinds of rejection that ultimately don't really receive the word. They all heard the word, but they were not receptive. They bore no fruit. The wayside represents hearts that are unresponsive. The stony places represent an initial emotional response, but lacking true repentance has no root in the heart. And that which fell among thorns represents a divided heart that is non-committal. All of these three soils, these first three soils, represent unbelievers who in the end will not go into the kingdom. In contrast, the word but is a contrast word, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now remember what Jesus said is indicative of true disciples at the end of chapter 12. Remember there, in, in, and it's connecting, this 13 is connected to chapter 12. And uh, there at the end of chapter 12, in 1250, he said, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Doing the will of the Father is fruit. Now, the root is faith. But if we have true faith, if the root is there, the fruit will follow. Doing the will of the Father is fruit. Which is characteristic of all those who have a saving faith relationship with Jesus. That, this is the one who is my, has a personal relationship with me. And in fact, is what Christ is talking about spiritually is my brother, sister, and mother. Evangelical commentary on the Bible says, this good ground soil alone illustrates what it means to be Jesus' true disciple. That a person has really understood and received the gospel of the kingdom will be evident in the way he or she lives. David Jeremiah makes a good summary statement here. Just as there are three levels of not believing the word of God... There are also three levels of productivity in the hearts of those who believe. Some produce a hundredfold. Some produce fruit sixtyfold. And some produce fruit thirtyfold. But Jesus presents no category where a true believer produces fruit zerofold. Bearing fruit is consistent with doing the will of the Father. It is consistent with fruit, more fruit, and much fruit in John 15, 1 through 5. There is no category for no fruit for the true believer. Again, Dr. Vlock says, by the way, years ago, not many of you were here, if any of you, but Dr. Vlock filled in one time uh, in our pulpit years ago when he was in Lincoln. And uh, anyway, I'd like to get him to come back someday. Maybe we can talk him into that. Anyway, But uh, notice what he says here. Only the seed on good soil bears fruit. These are true believers who bear fruit for God and are in a position to receive more kingdom truths. 
In sum, as the kingdom message is proclaimed, many will reject it, while only a few will believe. And then he says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, whenever Jesus says this, he is making a statement of paramount importance, as if to say, it is essential that you listen to this, that you get it, that you apply it, that you appropriate appropriate it, that you take it to heart. This exhortation is found 16 times in the New Testament. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is essential. You need to get this. Again, in context, he is saying that it is imperative that one respond properly to the word in order to be saved to go into the kingdom. That's the whole point of this opening parable. This statement warns that the message of the kingdom comes with great accountability and that one had better take it very seriously. After all, one's place in the kingdom, or lack thereof, is dependent upon it. It is essential to really hear the word of God in the sense that we personally take it to heart because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why? Why do you speak to them in parables? Clearly, how Jesus was addressing the crowd with parables at this point was different in the eyes of the disciples than what Jesus had previously been doing. This was different, and they knew it. Now, you understand, previously, Jesus had used parabolic language on occasion to illustrate his message, as seen, for example, in the, the wise man building his house upon the rock and the foolish man building his house upon the sand, as we saw back in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Or in the language of new wine in old wineskins, as seen in chapter 9. But this was different. Now parables formed the entire basis of his message to them, and they didn't get it. Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus had never taught the crowd strictly in the form of parables. Therefore, the disciples wanted to know, why this change? They couldn't understand why Jesus just didn't tell them straight out what he was wanting to say. So he tells them, verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you, the true disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The parables did two things simultaneously. They revealed further kingdom truth to true disciples, and they concealed the same truth from those not accepting the kingdom truth which they had already received. This principle is consistent with how Jesus, with what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Remember he said there, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. There is a time when it is inappropriate to give more of God's sacred truth to those who are hardened to it and blasphemously opposed. The nation as a whole, the nation of Israel as a whole, as led by its leaders, had reached that point. And therefore, further kingdom truth was now to be hidden from them. 
Yes, Christ was still reaching out to individuals, but the nation as a whole that was in sync with the religious leaders would not receive further kingdom truth. It would be hidden from them. Now let's unpack this. Note the word mysteries. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now there has been so much confusion. You just throw out the word mysteries and you have confusion. It's all a mystery, right? So much confusion. But really, I think needlessly so, if we are consistent with uh, proper hermeneutics, proper principles of interpretation. If interpreters would just consistently apply proper rules of interpretation, the understanding, in my view, would be clear. The word mystery in the New Testament, without exception and consistently, refers to something that was previously a divine secret, but now is made known through further revelation. We speak of a mystery in our common understanding as something that is presently unknown, right? You come and you ask me a question. I say, boy, it's a mystery to me. It's like I don't have a clue, right? It's, 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 it's unknown. But as used in the New Testament, it refers to something that was previously unknown, but is now revealed. It's a divine secret that can only be known by revelation, But now God is revealing it. So a mystery in the New Testament refers to God's revealed secret, which is therefore a secret no more. We see this, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. You know, the reality of the church, ultimately but now has been revealed to his saints. There's the idea. Previously hidden, but now revealed. Again, mystery in the New Testament refers to that which was formerly hidden and therefore unknown, but is now revealed and therefore known. Just defining the word properly is helpful. And note Christ is talking specifically here about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Christ is talking about kingdom truth previously unknown, but which now is being revealed in these parables. The language kingdom of heaven throughout Matthew refers to God's messianic kingdom rule on earth. It is spoken of <clears throat> it is spoken of as the kingdom of heaven because it is Heaven, that is, God, that brings it about. But clearly it is talking about the kingdom the Messiah will set up on earth that was previously prophesied in the Old Testament. This very same language, kingdom of heaven, was that which was used by John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Lord. It was the very same language Jesus used as he entered into his ministry. And it is the very same language the disciples used as they went out in Jesus' name performing kingdom sign miracles. So note the consistency here. Matthew 3, 2. 
John the Baptist comes on the scene and what does he say? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, entering into his public ministry, began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like John the Baptist and Jesus were on the same kingdom page here. And then as Jesus sent out the disciples during his earthly ministry, he said, Go and preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Total consistency. Clearly, by this language, the disciples understood Jesus to be talking about the very same messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And the Lord never corrected his disciples for holding to the idea of a literal earthly kingdom as foretold in the Old Testament. At the end of Christ's earthly ministry, they still had the same idea of a coming earthly kingdom as they did all along. They didn't say, well, we we completely had a wrong concept of of this coming kingdom. No. After his resurrection, Christ affirmed the idea of a coming literal earthly kingdom as the Jews had hoped for, as seen in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples said, is it now you will restore the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know the timing. So with all this background in Matthew, with the exact same kingdom language, you would then believe, as you get to Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, that it would mean the same thing. Consistency says it would. Stanley Toussaint makes this very point when he says, if the kingdom of the heavens was so defined as a literal earthly kingdom, in the preceding portions of Matthew, what is the basis for changing its meaning here? Great question. And the answer is, there is no basis for such a change. This is why I say, in the matter of proper interpretation, let Israel consistently stand for Israel. Let the kingdom consistently represent the kingdom, consistent with the Old Testament prophets. And let the church consistently represent the church. And in doing so, you will be on solid footing with regard to consistent sound doctrine. But if you begin to confuse the kingdom with the church, or the church with Israel... You'll be all over the map, and there will be much confusion. Many, even in our basic dispensational camp, want to claim that Christ, in these parables, was now introducing what they like to call, and perhaps you've heard this, it's very common, they introduce what what they like to call is a mystery form of the kingdom, otherwise known as a spiritual form of the kingdom. But I want you to look closely. That's not what the text says. That's not what it says. It does not introduce some new spiritual form of the kingdom, but rather reveals new truths about the same coming kingdom that were previously unrevealed. The same old kingdom hope is in view, but now new insights were being introduced to the to the true disciples, while at the same time being hidden from those hardened to kingdom truth. It's not a new form of the kingdom being introduced, but rather new kingdom insights that relate to the same messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. 
Now, some claim that this mystery form of the kingdom now includes both saved people and unsaved people. You know, the wheat and the tares grow together and they're all part of this kingdom mystery as, as we, and they go on from there. But again, that's totally inconsistent. There is no new form of the kingdom and lost people never have any part in the true kingdom at all as consistently brought out by Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, Matthew 11, and Matthew 18. Matthew 18.3, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Same language. So the kingdom means the kingdom, and it consistently means the exact same literal earthly kingdom the prophets prophesied about, that which John the Baptist was anticipating, that which Jesus Christ offered to Israel on the condition of repentance. But right here, right here is the rub. Israel did not repent. And therefore the kingdom offer was withdrawn. Therefore they could not go forward into the kingdom. Remember that both John the Baptist, followed by Jesus, came on the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was being offered, but on the condition of repentance. The nation had now as a whole hardened itself under the religious leaders and were not open to repentance. Therefore, there was a change in the kingdom program at this point, as presented by Christ in the form of the parables. These are kingdom parables in Matthew 13, giving further kingdom insight regarding God's kingdom program going forward. As we will see in our study going forward, a key new insight at this point, as brought out in the parables, is that because of the Jews' rejection of kingdom truth, there would now be a delay before the kingdom would be set up. And that is a major point. Whereas the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures expected the Messiah to come in immediately ushering the kingdom, there would now be a pause. And that was new information. Yes, the Old Testament hinted at it. And looking back now, we can clearly see it in places like Isaiah 53. But prior to this time, it was not clear. Note the earlier emphasis. I, I hate to be redundant, but we need to, to make the point. When, when is the kingdom coming? It's at hand. That's what John the Baptist said. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. It's being offered. It's right here. It's at hand. Jesus, same message. It's at hand. But I want you to note that after this time of Christ now speaking to the crowd in parables, as seen in Matthew 13, after this, never again do we see the kingdom being spoken of as being at hand. No more. That offer has now been withdrawn. And that is the point of the parables. Further kingdom insight now shows there is going to be an interim period. And these kingdom parables in Matthew 13 not only show the reality of this delay, but also what will be the nature of this interim period. 
the Jews knew full well of the promise of the coming Messiah and that he brings in the kingdom. But they did not know, they did not understand, they did not realize that there would be, are you ready for this? Two comings. This reality of two comings is a big part of this new kingdom insight that Christ was bringing forth in these parables that was hidden from the nation at large. We like this graphic, and we understand it from where we're at, right? Old Testament believers, they saw prophecies related to the first coming of Christ, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, etc., And they also saw prophecies of of his coming kingdom reign, Zechariah 14 and and Daniel chapter 2, on and on. So they, but the, the point I'm making here this morning is, yeah, they saw these things. They saw a suffering Messiah and they saw a reigning Messiah, but they thought it was all involved in, in one coming. And they emphasized the ruling reigning part. You see, the Jews did not clearly see the truth of the cross. And they didn't see it until after the resurrection. They assumed one coming, not two. And they assumed if Jesus was the Christ, he was here to set up the kingdom. That's why they kept asking Jesus about it. Is it now? We're expecting it. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? No, not yet. And yes, He was here to set up the kingdom if Israel would have repented. But they didn't. They didn't. And now what? Well, a delay has been put in place. This too is part of kingdom truth. Again, Dr. Vlock says, with hindsight, we now know that there will be two comings of Jesus and the kingdom blessings will be part of his second coming. But the two comings of Jesus was not revealed until Matthew 13. This is new insight. Now, we're not in the kingdom now in any form. I sincerely hope not. This just doesn't feel like the kingdom when I study about it. We're not in the kingdom in any form right now. Of course, God's sovereign reign, in that sense, is always in place. But we're talking here about the messianic kingdom where the Messiah will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. That's the whole context of Matthew. The Messianic kingdom has been put on hold, and we live in a time of interim. And as we know from further revelation, the entire church age takes place in this interim. Of course, nothing takes God by surprise. He always knew how Israel would respond. He always knew Christ would go to the cross. He always knew the reality of this coming delay. He always knew the reality of the two comings. That does not change the reality of Christ's legitimate offer of the kingdom as being at hand on the condition of repentance. The offer was legit and was part of God's sovereign plan, as was everything else. John Walbert makes this summary statement. Humanly speaking, the kingdom, instead of being brought in immediately, was postponed. From the divine viewpoint, the plan always included what actually happened. The human responsibility remains, however, and the rejection of the kingdom 
from this standpoint, caused the postponement of the promised kingdom on earth. So a footnote here. We are not presently in the kingdom, but we are praying for the kingdom to come as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even though we as the church, Christ right now, you know, we're not in the kingdom. We're in the church age. We're about church truth. But even so, even though we are not directly kingdom building in the sense of the kingdom now being set up, yet kingdom truth has application to us in this sense. We are seeking to win souls who will ultimately be in the kingdom. This is our great role in relationship to the coming kingdom. The whole of history is marching towards the kingdom. It's the great theme in the Bible. And the church, too, is marching for the kingdom. And we, too, are doing kingdom work in the sense that we are seeking to win people who will be in the kingdom. And in the end, every person will either share in the kingdom or be thrust from it. The great kingdom work of the church, therefore, is in sharing the gospel with people who, when they believe it, become kingdom citizens in the sense that they will share in Christ's coming kingdom. Believers are spoken of as sons of the kingdom, Matthew thirteen thirty-eight, Verse 12, Christ continues, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. <clears throat> A well-established principle in Scripture is that when light is received, more light is given. But when people reject the light that is given, then even that will be removed. And the people of Israel were given a great light. Notice what we have back in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Not a minor one. A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then as we come to the New Testament... Speaking of the ministry of Christ, the people who said, quoting Isaiah, people who said, in darkness have seen a great light. And from that time, Jesus began to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light was shining on them. Jesus, in speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist, said he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing, you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And Jesus then in John 12 says, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Israel definitely had the light. <clears throat> they had great opportunity to respond to the light. But as of Matthew 13, the door had closed. No more further kingdom truth would be made known to them. But for the true disciples, further kingdom truth in the form of the parables in Matthew 13 provides great insight into what is presently going on in the world in relationship to God's kingdom program. John Phillips correctly says, <clears throat> much that mystifies thoughtful people about the present age is made clear 
in the mystery parables. There is a principle in Scripture that willful blindness is followed by judicial blindness. We see this in Romans chapter 1, and this pattern is seen throughout the Scriptures. We see it in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, where God allows the world to be deceived because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. H.C. Woodring says, because they did not have the love of the truth, they would not get the light of the truth. Conversely, those accept the light, receive more light. Proverbs 4.18, the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. Verse 13, therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Here is the answer to the disciples' question. Christ speaking to them in parables was a form of judgment because seeing, they willfully choose not to see. And hearing, they willfully refuse to listen. And consequently, they did not understand. Verse 14. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So that I should heal them. This is a quote here in verse 14 and 15 from Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. And you see back in Isaiah's day... The people were willfully rebellious, refusing to hear, refusing to see what they were clearly shown. And that's followed by a statement of judicial hardening. This is understood, Isaiah 6, against the backdrop of Isaiah 5, where God had made every possible move towards his people that they might respond. Done absolutely everything possible for them to bring forth good fruit, and they rejected it. There comes a point where God lets people go in that sense. He hardens them. He gives them over to their own devices. A deliberate refusal to listen to God eventuates in the inability to hear or respond. Now, one can become so calloused that one reaches the point of no return, and that becomes an irremediable situation. And this reflects the national judgment in Isaiah's time, which Christ then applied to the people of his day. There really are six times this Isaiah passage is quoted in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and then in Acts and also Romans. Now it is noteworthy that the application of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 describes the spiritual condition of the people before Christ spoke the parables, not as a result of him sharing the parables, The condition reflected in the parables is merely descriptive. The parables are in relationship to divine judgment upon Israel because of the already hardened condition of their hearts. Howard Voss says, The spiritually responsive were never denied the truth. The invitation to receive Christ was always open, clear, and uncomplicated. It was those who hardened their hearts against Christ who were being dealt with in parables on this occasion. And note, they had a heart problem. Uh, Verse 15, it talks about their hearts. At core, the problem was that these people had a, a hard heart of willful defiance, willful rebellion. The nation at large essentially hardened their hearts against the truth of Christ 
But Jesus still held out an invitation to those individuals who were still in the balance, so to speak. He invites the heavy laden to come to him and find rest. Well, one cannot sit on the fence. The challenge was to respond to the light given, lest they be hardened, which was indicative of the nation as a whole. Matthew 13 presents the hard lesson that while we have the light, we need to respond to it. I call this the light of conviction. If we don't respond to the light of conviction, there comes a point where it will be withdrawn and the person will descend into even greater darkness. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews chapter 3. Or as Paul says, receive not the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, people often say these fatal words. I'll do it later. Not now. James Kennedy shares this story. I once talked to a young man of about 22 who told me that he, that he believed in God and Christ intellectually and believed that the Bible was true and someday planned to accept Christ as his Savior. But first he said, I've got a lot of living to do. I remonstrated with him for some time, but finally when I saw that I could not persuade him, I let him go, reminding him that the Bible says, He who being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. A week later... I heard that he was driving down the highway about 70 miles an hour when a truck stopped in front of him with the tailgate down. He was instantly decapitated. I remembered the words that I had spoken to him. He that hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. No wonder Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In many respects, this was the last call to those who were in danger of hardening themselves against the truth to the point of no return. Now is this accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may forever be too late. Indeed, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand and have our closing song.